Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We'd love for you to join the conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship. If you have a question, please text or email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. And on today's episode, we have a special guest. Let's tune in. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, and welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. Sean Richards hosting today and joined by Bo Olette yes. for the next edition of A Reason for I'm Hope. I'm in the house, Sean. And I am not absent from it. That's usually when we see you, is it not? <laughs> yes, so it's super awesome to be with you, man. Yeah, and of course, uh, for those of you who aren't familiar, he's the assistant pastor of our local fellowship here, founder of Running Light Ministries, and all-around good guy, as I am also advertised <laughs> as being. If you have any Bible questions for us for the next hour, feel free to send them along to us. Our email address is questionsforhope at gmail.com. Our Facebook page is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, and our YouTube page is A Reason for Hope. If you want to join us on any or all of those platforms, note that you'll be able to engage with us face-to-face at any time. Of course, if you want to join us live, it'll be from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time every single weekday, but noting the website is where you can join us with the most security, Calvary Christian Fellowship, that's C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, christianfellowship.com, is where we would most be eager to engage with you, since, of course, we don't run the risk of being banned for saying things they don't like on YouTube or Facebook. Uh, Note the interesting, I guess, topics that we'll be discussing will, of course, be limited to questions about the Bible. If they are sincere questions that, of course, discuss what is in the Bible, we'll be happy to take the time for the next hour to address them. You can email them to us once again at questionsforhope at gmail.com. And also, if you're joining us on live stream, sending us the questions as the comments are sent along there, note that you can also send them along to us by email if we, uh, I guess, if time escapes us in that regard. We're looking forward to speaking with you about these issues. And remember that you're the ones that set the tone for the subject matter we're discussing on the broadcast, as long as it fits the criteria of sincere Bible questions. And of course, before we get into all of them, we want to make sure the author of Scripture is speaking more than we do. So, uh, Bo, I want to take a moment to pray and ask that God will bless the broadcast. Yeah, and I want to apologize that right before we went on, on air, I had a big yawn. I, like, yawned really quick, and then, boom, we were on. So I, I apologize for that yawn, man. That was—you <laughs> don't want to yawn on air. <laughs> the amusing sight for those in the stream, but those in radio are probably have more questions than answers. <laughs> anyway, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for our time together, and uh, thank you that uh, this is a, a divine appointment for— not just Sean and myself, but for everybody who is listening, that you have something for them. And we pray that as iron sharpens iron, so uh, one man sharpens another. And we pray, Father, that we would uh, sharpen each other, that we would uh, say the things that you would desire for us to, to say, and that our words would be grace seasoned with salt. And Father, help us uh, to have compassion Uh, as you have had such great compassion on us. Uh, Thank you for this time, and we ask this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. That is true. Countenance, that's the sharpening in that passage. Um, We received not really a question, but certainly a topic that's going to come up one way or another if you are contending earnestly for the faith and giving a reason for the hope that is within you. The concern was about Numbers 31 and, of course, the sticky business involved there. Uh, Bo, how is that passage generally referenced from not only atheists, usually, but also from Muslims when the accusation is made against the reliability, or in this case, morality of Scripture? Yeah, um, it's usually framed in a way of that God is immoral. It can either be framed as God is immoral, um, or that the Bible is wrong, uh, and it shows, you know, these immoral attitudes of the uh, of God of Yahweh, and so um, it therefore is wrong. And so that's usually how it's put about. You All know? right. Well, what about that passage would be immoral if the accusations made that God's violating His own nature here? Yeah. Well, I think what people look at is they go, "Hey, how can God?" They 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 go into this reasoning of like, if God is loving then how could God do something like this? Therefore... God is not loving because he did something I don't like. That's right. And, and, that's, and, now, and obviously there's a lot of things to unpack in someone's statement like that, and that is, what do you mean by loving? Um, and What do you mean by moral? What, what do you mean by God? And what do you mean by is? Right, <laughs> right. A lot of things. And a lot of times... Like, what we're getting at is a lot of times when we have God fashioned in our own image, we come at the Bible in a very critiquing way. You know, like, for instance, before I knew anything about the Bible, I came at the Bible, meaning I started when I was thinking about Bible things or when someone told me about something biblical, I I came at the Bible already very um, critical and already had an idea of who I thought God should be, or what God should be like. And uh, it was very arbitrary. It wasn't based on any kind of objective truth or anything like that. Or It was just my own belief system of how I think God should act. So when you read something like the Book of Numbers, you would go, oh my gosh, like how can this be God? Like my God is all-loving, all gracious. We always go that direction, you know. My God. Now, yeah. is your God and the God of the Bible always the same thing? No, he totally. It can be totally different. We might. I might. I was influenced in in Christianity in the sense that I heard that you know I, I wanted to believe that God was loving, and so Whatever sure. Whatever that means. And what I meant, what I thought that meant, is that God was always good with us human beings. Unless <laughs> you really did something bad. According to who? <laughs> right, right. Where we didn't, you know, we don't have answers to all that. We don't think through those, those things that you're talking about and, and that you're forcing the, the listener to have to deal with. What is bad? What is good? Where do we get bad? Where do we get good? What's your concept of God? Where do you get your concept of God? Who's the uh, ultimate authority? Those things never really crossed my mind. We just looked at Numbers 31 and we just said, hey, this seems, this seems wrong. 
All right, now what about it seemed wrong to you and your version of God, if that already isn't a problem? Yeah, and like, I think, you know, we would look at it and we might say like, well, hey, you know, um, and I'll play kind of the devil's advocate here, you know, kind of person, but we would look at this passage and we would go, hey, it says Moses, you know, says, hey, you know, kill all the men and all the boys and all the women who were participating in some event. And, you know, we don't... Well, let's just stick to the text, <laughs> because how it was phrased by the atheist is, there was a time in history where your loving God just ordered a bunch of innocent men, women, and children to be killed for no reason. Now, what is the passage? Because they'll usually not even get that far. Yeah, and so this is what the passage says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take vengeance on the Midianites for the children of Israel. Afterward you shall be gathered to your people. And, and so Moses speaks to the people, saying, arm yourself, so this is a time of war against the Midianites. So there's a time in history, the time of Moses in particular, against mm -hmm. a particular people group, not all people, yeah. but this particular group. In the context of vengeance, okay, that sounds weird, but usually you don't take revenge. The last time I saw Batman, his parents got shot before he became Batman, not after of something, let's consider that as maybe hinted in the 30 chapters that took place before this, but also <laughs> note they're going to war. Now, yeah. people die in war. How were then the aftermath, the survivors dealt with? This is the issue. Yeah, the survivors, it says, look, these women caused the children of Israel uh, through the council of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the incident of Peor, and there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. Now, now this is verse 15, correct? Yeah, yep, that's 15. And it says... Um, it says, now therefore, kill every male among the little ones and kill every woman who has known a man intimately. So we would, I wouldn't even know the context of this as a non, when I was a non-Christian, I would just read it. Go to verse 17 yeah. alone, not verse 15, you misleader, giving us more context <laughs> rather than less. They'd go to verse 17 and say, just kill a bunch of people for no reason. That's right. That's what we would do. That's now, how we What would does do. it go on to say? Because this is where the real immoral aspect comes up. It says, but keep alive for yourself all the young girls who have not known a man intimately. And as for you, remain outside the camp seven days whoever has killed any person and whoever has touched any slain, purify yourselves and your captives on the third day and on the seventh day. Purify every garment, etc. And then uh, Eliezer the priest said to the men of war who had gone into the battle, this is the ordinance of the law uh, of the Lord that the Lord commanded Moses, only the gold, silver, and it goes over kind of what to do. So with, the, um, the real point of emphasis is that keep the young women, girls even it says, yep. who have not known a man intimately for mm -hmm. yourselves. Now at face value, I would like some explanation to that. And if they just read verse 17 and 18, or the first half of 18, out of any sort of setting in light of verse 15 that would clarify a few things, but let's just even leave that out. I would say that God is ordering not only the mass extermination of a group of people for no reason, as the atheists would say, but also then ordering these girls to be sexually assaulted. Now what's important to note about that is not what the text says, but they'll infer how did they know they were virgins if they didn't go and sleep with them? Or know them carnally, as your translation would say. And so this inference of perversion on the part of the reader attributes to the nation of Israel something that first went against their law. We'll talk about that in a moment. Yeah. But sec uh, secondly, and more importantly, went against the nature of God as it's being presented. Now, obviously, these are some of the more difficult objections to deal with because it involves 
reading. And again, not to be um, more facetious than what's necessary, I'm trying to give a lighthearted tone on all of this because it's a lot simpler a matter than it's made out to be. And what's difficult is oftentimes when a simple lie is told, it takes a complicated truth to answer it. It'd be easy if everything that we could say came from the assumption of goodwill, that people either A, are going to be objective with the text, or B, honest with it. But we can't assume either when these sort of objections are brought up. Now, there's one of two possibilities. The person who's bringing this up either has been told by somebody that this is what the passage says, that they were able to, you know, do some uh, light Google searching about violence in the Bible. They were told by an atheist blog or a prominent member of their family who is an atheist or a Muslim or someone who would be against the Bible. Cite this passage or this verse and a half from a passage in the middle of a very long book and say, this is the kind of God the Christians worship. And I would have a problem with that. Bo, if the God of the Bible ordered people to be sexually assaulted and exterminated as advertised for no reason, I wouldn't want to follow that God. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if that's then the case, we should do one of two things. Either A, stop being Christians, or B, examine what it means to be a Christian, which obviously in the Old Testament starts with loving the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Let's focus on the second one, the mind. What happened? If I'm, um, this is oftentimes the illustration that comes in handy in other face-to-face encounters, if I'm talking to somebody and say, there is a guy who put a woman on this table, cut her belly open, would you say that person belongs in prison? Well, yeah, if that's all the information I had. What if I included a, a slight detail, the woman was pregnant? Oh, well, that's worse, but wait a minute. Well, who was the guy? Oh, he was a doctor. Uh, what were the circumstances of her belly being cut open. Well, she was in the middle of labor, and the baby's heart stopped, and they had to perform an emergency C-section. Context changes things yeah, a bit, doesn't uh, it? So if on the other hand, I'd say, oh, a bunch of girls were sexually assaulted if I only quote half this passage. And if I, of course, read verse 17 out of the 16 verses that came before it and the 30 chapters that came before that, I might come to some odd conclusions. But you did us the disservice. You bigoted Christian, of reading two verses prior. And in verse 15, what did it say? Take vengeance for yourselves against the Midianites for the advice of a man named Balaam. Now, Balaam is a weird name. Again, I'm an American. You know, I I have a a Irish name, Sean. You have a French name, Bo. When it comes to our uh, European sentiments, we hear a guy named Balaam, and we're like, is that one of them, (laughs) like, uh, desert people? What's going on here? Well, when does Balaam's name first appear in the Bible? Do we have to go to even another book? No. Just all we have to do is take a little bit of time and just go back a few chapters. Yeah, obviously the book of Numbers starting from chapter 1 might be a stretch in our TikTok generation, but it'll help if you're (laughs) dealing with this objection. So let's start with the basics. When does Balaam's name first appear? In Numbers 22. And as a summation, again, don't take my word for it. That's what we're trying to avoid in these kinds of objections. Look this up on your own time. Chapters 22 through 24 detail for us a very interesting event. The king of the Midianites, a specific province of Midian that was called Moab, wanted to commission him as basically a prophet for hire. He wanted them to, uh, Balaam rather, wanted to curse the people of Israel, and Balak would pay him for his services in doing so, because oddly enough, when they commissioned their pagan priests to curse people, nothing happened. But when they commissioned this guy, things did happen. His god was 
real. So he commissioned him. And unfortunately, Balaam, being of poor moral character, didn't uh, take a hint when God told him, no, those are my people. You don't touch them. He decided instead, and this is in chapter 24, to give advice to the king of Moab, the Midianite king who is being held responsible here, who's being taken vengeance on here. And what was interesting about it was he said, well, you know men as well as I do, and if you send in a bunch of girls that are interested, all of their brain chemistry goes to nil. You and I can both say it uh, well attested to that. Now, when these girls come in, obviously there will be uh, interested parties involved. You get them to worship your gods through, of course, rites that involve sexual encounters. And this would then cause them to be cursed by their god. I can't curse them, but you can get them to curse themselves. Again, read this in Numbers 22 through 24. He tries to curse Israel, but fails. He ends up uh, speaking numerous prophecies mm. of even Israel's Messiah. <laughs> it's a uh, kind of a very amusing image if you take a second to imagine the picture, like he's getting up on these mountains offering these sacrifices, and then he tries to set, set a curse, but then like Jim Carrey and Liar Liar, just blessings start blurting out, and then the king of uh, Midianite, the Midianite says, you're fired, and he says, wait, 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 wait. money, um, I can get you to get them to curse themselves. Just send your women into the camp and get them to sleep with the guys. God will curse them for you. So all that happens, and the total body count as the result of this manipulation, according to Numbers 25, was what? 24,000 people slain. Are my numbers right on that? Um, yes, 24,000. Now, again, for those listening at home, what is the chapter and verse? Because atheists won't give you that luxury. As they were being judged by God, as Eliezer and his son Phineas were both grieving outside the tabernacle as all this debauchery is going on around them, an interesting thing took place. A guy was held accountable by literally getting impaled with a tent stake, and it was awesome. But how many people ended up dying as a result of this judgment from God? It was 24,000 people. Now, obviously these men did something stupid, which we can partially blame them for, but we also know that if it weren't for the advice of Balaam, their lives would still have been intact. So if you orchestrate the death of somebody, are you just as culpable for their death? Thus the vengeance. So we go from Numbers 25 to Numbers 30, as they're keeping track of the bodies and how many people are left alive in Israel, and they wreak vengeance. Now, vengeance for 24,000 people. When we went to war in the Middle East, it was obviously advertised as such, and again, not making an argument for or against your sentiments on the war. The point then being made, though, was for 9-11, everyone in the country at first thought it was justified for us to go to war with the people who had caused how many deaths? 2,000, maybe? If we went to, or participated rather, in World War II as the result of the bombing of Pearl Harbor, how many people were killed as a result of that? Completely justified in thousands of deaths. How about two dozen thousand of those deaths? Now we're starting to find out that the doctor was performing a C-section and that the baby's heart was stopped. So now it comes down to the nitty gritty. Anything you want to add before we I'll, get into the law concerning female captives? Yeah, before we get into the whole law, uh, because that's another contextual thing that's really important, is just uh, also when you look at Numbers 25, and again, this is getting into the context, the history of what's going on in Numbers 31, 
Um, Israel, it says, was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. And, and so I, I want people to understand this. Then the Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people and hang the offenders before the Lord out in the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. These are some huge ideas that are being talked about that most atheists don't quite understand, meaning uh, a lot of them don't understand the contextual idea that God is dwelling within the midst of Israel and what that entails. Um, sometimes we joke around, like people complain, especially when I was an atheist, you know, I always complained like, oh, I don't believe in God because I don't see God. So my excuse for not believing God in God is that, you know, I can't see, you know, God's nowhere to be found. But it's interesting if God, you know, if, you know, when God does show himself in the Bible, people always complain that he is too near to them and they want him to be away. And it, it just goes to show that us human beings, man, we will complain about God no matter if he's close or no matter if he's far away. We will have an excuse for unbelief because our unbelief is rooted not in fact, but it's in are what we want to do. It's in our will, meaning we are being stubborn. We want to do what we want to do. We want to reject the deity. So when you come at the Bible with a heart of, I want to reject the deity, you will always find an excuse. But so I hope that makes some sense, you know? So you might be talking to someone and they, you find they always have a an excuse for why they're not believing in God. Well, that's because even though you bring up all the passages, you bring up all the the whatever, the evidence, they always have an excuse, and that's because they're not ready yet. Their heart is hard, you know, and when my heart's hard, you can show me every Bible passage, and I'm just going to go, nope, you know, if God's close, I want him away. If he's near, if he's here, if he's close to me, I want him you know, far away. If he's far away, I want him near. I'll always have an excuse to reject God because my heart's just not in the right place. But notice that when God judges um, during this time of uh, Israel's failure before the Midianites, God judges Israel. And, you know, it's very interesting that before there's any war with the Midianites— in Numbers 31, the anger of the Lord is aroused against Israel, his covenant people, and his covenant people are judged. And so, you know, the Bible says something really interesting. There's no favoritism with God, and I think you see that in these passages. Some people might say, oh, well, God favors Israel. Oh, yeah? Well, God's anger was aroused against them, and he judged them before the war in, in Numbers 31 against the Midianites. And you have to remember the issue that it says that the anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. See, the whole context is that God is living within the people, the nation of Israel. And when God lives in, is involved in lives, God cannot tolerate something. He cannot tolerate evil. He cannot tolerate sin. Sin will be judged. Evil will be judged. And this, in the Midianites, along with other uh, of the nations in Canaan, 
we're given over to false gods and false deities, and we're told in the book of Leviticus um, about some just some of the heinous things that they were involved in. And so I, you know, I, I want people to understand that th- this idea that God is dwelling in the midst of Israel, and if you want God to dwell with you, you you there is ramifications for that. You know, God is a holy God, and he. he you know, by his holy character, he needs to judge sin. Sin needs to be eradicated. It needs to be dealt with. And, and note, even if you don't agree with the God of the Bible's quote-unquote existence, if you're critiquing the Bible, at least let it stand or fall on its own grounds. Right. For the sake of argument, I would do this with the Quran. I would do this with origin of species. I would let Darwin, I would let Muhammad or whoever set up their own narrative and challenge them on that. I wouldn't impose my Christian standards and say, your God should be like mine. And if my God is fake, I'll critique it because yours is inferior. No, I'd say, look at your God on his merits or demerits in this case, supposedly, and say, that is bad. You would agree, I would agree, and he would agree. If I just say, I don't like that, that's an opinion. If he doesn't like that and then does it, that's the objection. That's why this would mean anything. But they could only make that objection if they read one and a half verses and ask no question as to when, why, where, how, or even what is happening. Yeah. So so there is a, a full context that we've kind of got into a little bit so you guys could see the issues of God dwelling with Israel, uh, and, and there is a demand of holiness within Israel, and that Israel itself is being judged as well. And then Midianites, by the way, another contextual thing that's really important that it gets missed out a lot in Numbers 31 is that Moses knew something about the Midianites, did he not? Yeah. Yeah, his, his wife, his first wife's father was a priest of... Midian. Midian. So, and we can read this in the book of Exodus, by the way. Yeah, so, so this isn't something that's, that's weird. Um, the Midianites come from a family line of Abraham and his marriage with a lady named Keturah. And, and so, you know, there is a—this th- isn't some, some, you know, out-of-the-blue thing, you know, again, like— so many people just pull out like a, a passage and say, "Oh, this is horrible." No, there's a backstory going on, and it's a huge backstory. Thirty chapters um, of a story. <laughs> yeah, and so listen. And then the other objection has to do with, "Hey, these women. I mean, come on. You 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 have these, you know, these women who are virgins, and then you allow them to be, in a sense." For yourselves. What for yourselves. else could that mean? Because it's totally not me imposing my perverted mindset onto the passage. Well, then yeah. them being raped. Well, here's the problem. Let's go back, and assuming, of course, this vengeance not compounding, since God ordered it, since God sought it through, and since, here's the key, God didn't punish anyone afterwards for it, what was the law concerning female captives, period? If there was a woman after a battle, and they were to be treated as a spoil of war, if you were a Greek, if you were a Persian, if you were a Babylonian, if you were a Canaanite, what did they do? Yeah, they would rape you. Everyone was doing that at this time. But what were Jews supposed to do? Well, I read in Exodus chapter 21, notice the first laws given after the Ten Commandments. 
These are the judgments you shall set before him. Concerning the servants, they are allowed to be served for six years, then they must be set free. Interesting for abolition is its foundation. Now here's verse 7. If a man sells his daughter to be a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has betrothed her. Is that rape? No. In fact, during a Jewish betrothal period, what was required for that to be fulfilled, if you remember the incident with Joseph and Mary. Yeah, well, you had to, as a man, you had to pay a price. Okay, um, now, assuming the father's dead, obviously, there's no one to pay a price to, so how would this be fulfilled in the context of war? And during a betrothal period, you weren't allowed to touch her yeah, for you, a year. Yeah. Okay, you, so obviously no sexual stuff's happening for at least a year, that's a first problem, but that's contextual. Let's go to the uh, actual text. If she does not please her master who is betrothed her to himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has dealt deceitfully with her. And if he has betrothed her to his son, he shall deal with her according to the custom of daughters. If he takes another wife, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, and her marriage rights. And if he does not do these three for her, that is food, clothing, and marital rights, he, she shall go out free without paying money. So the only context in which women were allowed to be enslaved was what? You marry her. If you're betrothed to somebody, you're not allowed to touch her for a year, but you're considered legally married. And if you remember with Joseph and Mary, the reason why Joseph was going to put away Mary, not legally divorce her, but end the betrothal period, so to speak, was because he assumed adultery, obviously, when being pregnant and all. And it took a vision from God, an angel literally coming to him, and not just an angel, the angel Gabriel, to say, this is legitimate. Because, excuse me, besides, what would it take to convince you that this story was legit? It would take that, and he was given that. But here's the point. If God didn't punish Israel for the way that they treated the women, then it's assumed that they treated the women the way that God told them to treat women in war. If that was only permitted to be betrothal and marriage and to not diminish any rights from a wife, then these young girls were what? Either set free or married, like Exodus chapter 21 tells us. If on the other hand you accuse Israel of doing this act, it would be the same reconciliation of the passage of saying, well, then they did a bad thing. But what did they do as opposed to what God is? It doesn't carry water. So in order to come to this conclusion, you need to, and this is the objection, assume rape in a passage that doesn't say it. B, you have to infer that the whole context is from chapter, not 15, or not uh, verse 15 of chapter 31, but not from chapter 22, despite two verses prior mentioning who caused this and why, and ultimately when misrepresenting the passage and taking passages piecemeal and ignoring the who, what, when, where, why, and how something happened. This doesn't sound like a good objection to me. No, and again, it, you know, you forget, I, mean, I, think, I think it's so cool that you brought up, you know, so much of the Jewish law and, and how the Jews would look at things, because when you, if you, if you, your objection is that, oh, or if you take the passage and you say, hey, you know, oh, well, they, they raped these girls, well, that is, that's kind of the reason why God judged Israel in the first place. <laughs> like they were acting like everyone else. That's right. They're acting like everybody else. And that's why Israel lost 24,000. 
thousand was it mm-hmm. people um, in their judgment. So, but God also knew who orchestrated this and held him and those who participated in it responsible. Why did they kill the women again who had known him carnally? Well, just an inference, because again, we're doing that, right? How would they have lost their virginity if not either A, by their participation in these pagan rites, or their imposing these pagan rites on the people of Israel? The ones who caused the deaths were killed. Yeah, and... and you know, I, again, I just I think that it, I know from my perspective is when I used to critique uh, Christianity, a lot of times I just did not know, Sean, all these passages. I didn't right. know the context. I didn't know. If you said Torah to me, I would have been like, what is that? <laughs> and if I were to accuse you of lying, it would be inappropriate. But mm-hmm. if you brought this up to me, you aren't reading Numbers 31 on your own time, let alone verses 17 and half of 18. But someone would have to either hand that off to you yeah. or knowingly lie to you in order for you to feel like you could get one up on me. This is what you need to be prepared for. Don't think that they're lying to you unless they're the source. But if they're bringing this up, say, and this is just the uh, classic Columbo tactic, a good question's always better than a direct answer. Well, okay, that's verse 17. What about the other verses? Do you think there might be some setup to this story? Yeah. And if you were to then make the objection, I don't care what setup it is. That's rape. That's war crimes. Well, then I really want to know, why not more information so we can really show how bad this is? That would be a more appropriate engagement for me to say, you liar, stop blaspheming a God that you don't even care about anyway. Right. It would accomplish nothing. Yeah, and when you say Columbo... Um, Peter Falk's uh, mystery detective character where uh, he would famously solve these murder mysteries, but without a mystery, uh, you'd know who the killer was from the beginning, and mm-hmm. you just watch him kind of shumble around, not knowing what he's doing, seeming innocent, but he's smart, and he's looking for all these little clues, and at the end, he brings it all together. Yes. That's what we want to be like. Yeah, so a Columbo tactic is, is how you engage someone who has an objection Harmless as doves, but wise as serpents. Yeah, so asking questions, that's what you're saying. Hey, well, why don't you read this passage? Or why don't, have you read that passage? And why don't you go over those things? So, yeah, it's a big topic. It's one that I, I, I you know, I, for one, don't have a problem with it. Um, uh, I'm glad God judges sin. Um, and I'm glad the God of the Bible, um, if there is a God, I would imagine that um, he would need to uphold righteousness, or else he he himself wouldn't be righteous. So um, that makes logical sense to me. So the people who committed the idolatry were judged. They set them up to be killed, though. They were also judged. The mm-hmm. people who set them up, both were fulfilled. It's honest. Yeah. But that puts me in an uncomfortable position, because I also deserve to be judged. That's right. That's right. We also deserve as well. And and the only reason why we have, in a sense, got the get out of jail free card is God's grace and God's mercy. Mm -hmm. And and that's what we always have to remember um, as Christians so that, you know, we share with people that we all deserve, you know, death. We all deserve separation from God. You know, if God were to dwell in the United States and he were to make his presence known, 
Um, We'd be held accountable for that. We would be held accountable to, to, uh, according to his righteousness. And this is how we all live. So when someone objects to these kind of things, we all live according to a law of the land. There are laws in our land that are to uphold what we call righteousness or goodness. There's supposed to be good laws. And when someone breaks those laws, we, we want the court system to uphold the law uphold righteousness. If a court system does not uphold righteousness, then we call it a corrupt court. And that is not a good thing. We see that no longer does the law matter. It is everybody is a law unto themselves. There is no law that governs the people. Well, when God, who is the lawgiver, appears in the Bible and draws close to human beings, there is a accountability to the lawgiver. And and that has serious, serious consequences. Because we're living at a time today where what? We're given accountability to what Jesus did in history. Mm -hmm. And based on the light that we've been given, some of us have seen more miracles than others, but if God is going to hold us accountable to what we have, it's a simple claim of history. Some people could not know proper historical criticism. Some people can come from more hostile backgrounds and encounters, but you don't see a lot of, as many people rather, getting struck with lightning bolts. Why? Because they're being held accountable to what they have. The Old Testament, we see that a lot. Why? Because God's showing up. When God showed up in the Messiah, people were being struck dead in the book of Acts. Why? Because they saw these things. We haven't seen these things. We simply have to examine the truth within them, and we'll give an account at the end of our lives. And I've heard you teach on on, on the Old Testament before about Moses and the Ten Commandments and Mount Sinai, and... Uh, and I've heard you talk about how, you know, when, when, you know, everybody's, you know, wanting God, wanting to see God, wanting to be around God, and when God shows up, everybody's what? They're freaking out. In Every- Exodus 20, they said, Moses, you speak to us on God's behalf, because if this is every single Saturday Sabbath session, we're going to die. Yeah, and so the book of Numbers becomes a book of accountability. Numbers, account, accounting, think of it that way. Numbers, accounting, accountability. It's, it's, we are now accountable to God. The book of Numbers is declaring that. And it's interesting, but as the Bible narrative goes on and on and on, as you read the Old Testament, you find that God becomes far, so much, so far away from the people that Isaiah declares as the prophet of Israel that our sins have separated us from our God. And he also calls God the hidden God. That God is, in a sense, absent from the world, and that that in itself is evidence for God's existence. God's existence is, is seen in that he is not present here. He is, in a sense, separated from us because our sins have separated us from God. So the absence of the divine being not being on the earth when I was an atheist, I used to think, oh, that's proof God doesn't exist. Well, no, from the Bible's perspective, it's actually proof that God exists. In light of all the other evidence it's given. That's right, that God is actually merciful, because if he were to draw close, as we see in Exodus chapter 20 during the Mount Sinai situation, right, with the Ten Commandments, 
we would act just like Israel. We wouldn't say, great, God's with us. Oh, it's so, um, it's a great time. Let's have great, let's have fun. No, it would be that the day of the Lord is here and woe to those who desire the day of the Lord for what is that day? Is it light? Nope, it's darkness. <laughs> it is terror. Meaning it is terror. It is meaning it, to be in the presence of a perfect law perfect righteousness is a frightening thing without grace and mercy upon us. We need that. So I hope that helps people understand the big pictures of the Bible. Yeah, and as a follow-up on that, the same individual made a question, have you ever seen God face to face? You talked about the importance of the hiddenness of God, but an atheist would bring this up as an objection to God's existence because it's not something that we can see. Now, if uh, it's still in the works, I've got a little project going on. I'll first answer this with a a lighthearted tone, and then we'll get into the scripture. Um, That's an interesting objection people make, because when you say, well, God doesn't exist, why not? Well, have you ever seen him? Has anyone you ever known ever seen him? The argument is, of course, that if no one has ever seen anything, therefore it doesn't exist. Well, uh, this will be how I'll uh, present it. Uh, The modern atheists are making the objection that the God of the Bible doesn't exist because of their killer objection. No one has ever seen him. They determine this through the laws of logic, which they haven't seen either. You can think about that for a minute, but going back to the scripture, there was actually an individual, at least in writing, who said that he did see God face to face. This is the first epistle of John, chapter 1 and verse 1. That which was from the beginning. Okay, what would that be? Who was from the beginning, who was eternal, who's always existed? That would be God. Which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard. So he said it three times. We've seen this. We declare to you that you may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write to you that your joy may be full. Now, just so there's no guesswork as far as the significance of this, let's go to the gospel written by the same man, the Apostle John, where he defined that word of life. It says, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God, and the word was God. So we can be clear about that. Now, how did they see him? How did they touch him? Because that Mm -hmm. same chapter says in verse, uh, that would be 12, no one has seen God at any time. So how then, in what sense, did they see God if no one has seen God in a direct sense? Well, it says in verse 14, the word, remember verse 1, the word that was God, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So when I then ask, what evidence do I have to believe that anyone, let alone the Apostle John, saw him at any given time? Was that just something that he said, or is that something that he can prove? Well, like anything in history, the proof is in not only the number of people that you can verify, but the quality of the information, the people that you can double-check, cross-reference, examine to see if there's ulterior motives, and, of course, if the information they wrote about their experiences don't actually line up with the time they're talking about. This is called historical criticism. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 
states, and again, Paul the Apostles recounting this, atheist scholars, by the way, the infamous Jesus Seminar, as far left as they come. These are not Christians. These are atheists, agnostics, critics of the Bible, made a consensus view, and this is, again, uh, David Tubigin, uh, John Dominic Crossan, not Christians. They would say that as far as this creed, this quotation that Paul's making, pretty early. we can date it not just pretty early, the earliest of anything in ancient history, bar none. This was put and codified, meaning put into books, within months of the event they're talking about. So as far as what Christianity is, this is as close to its foundational teachings as we can get. Paul speaking says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel. This is the gospel. (laughs) Which I declare to you, which you've received, and in which you stand, by which also you stand, if you hold fast the word which I have preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered that to you, first of all, which that I received. So here's the creed, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Okay, fun story. But did people actually see this, or did you just say this? Then he was seen by Cephas. Now, Cephas, that's a nickname, not his birth name. It means <laughs> a rock. But what was the individual's name by Peter? Birth? Yeah, Simon Peter. Now, this nickname given to him by Jesus was, again, also speaking to the same person who at the night Jesus was killed, no atheist worth his salt would object to that, said that it uh, was not a pleasant evening for the two of them. I mean, Jesus was getting beaten to a bloody pulp, but when Jesus was experiencing this persecution, what did the apostle Peter have to face? A little girl challenged him and said, aren't you one of his disciples? And And he he said, said, with cursing and swearing, I don't know the man. So not the kind of guy who uh, was looking for Jesus after his death. Yeah, you think the hero of the story, you think he would be the hero, but he's not. No, primary (laughs) eyewitness is a hostile one. Then by the 12, that's more than one person. Then he was seen by over 500 brethren at once. So it wasn't an individual conglomeration of people who got convinced of this. 500 people at the same time saw the same thing, had the same encounter. Atheist Jews have acknowledged this was not a hallucination. So note the point. Of whom, this is Paul's note parenthetically, a greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. Sleep is, again, used in the same book, 1 Corinthians 15 through Second uh, Corinthians 5, as a euphemism for physical death. Most of the people at the time Paul was writing this were still alive. You can ask them. After that, verse 7, he was seen by James. That was Jesus' half-brother, <laughs> the biological offspring of Mary and Joseph, and one of them, by the way. But what's interesting about that was, once again, uh, Bo, you have a big brother. I have not been blessed with yes. the honor. But if uh, JP, as he's yeah. called for the sake of the audience, and he also goes by that, if you're wondering, <laughs> uh, were to claim that he was God. Well, first would, of all, he'd be the I'm, first to be surprised about that. But <laughs> yeah. secondly, what would it take to convince you if you're James um, and JP's Jesus? He would have to do something uh, amazing. Maybe a resurrection from the dead? Maybe. Yeah, we'll start yeah, there. definitely. That would definitely help. Yeah. Then by all the apostles, then last of all, he notes this, he's seen by me also as one born out of due time. So I wasn't one of the original eyewitnesses, but I saw him after his documented death. So if someone's alive after they died, that means that they either rose from the dead or they didn't die. Since his his death could be verified through a public burial, that would eliminate that option. And also to the uh, the atheists that would make the claim Jesus never existed. If you died, that means at some time you were born. Making a stretch. 
But once again, I'm being fun. We're talking amongst our brothers here. We need to understand this is the historical data we have on the table. And because the Bible documents this information, just because the people you're talking to don't understand how to handle it doesn't mean that atheists who do would also agree. They come to different conclusions about it, but this is the information we have. Why do we believe that God exists? Because a man in history claimed to be God, verified it through a historic resurrection from the dead, and gave us over 500 documented eyewitnesses to verify that. That's as certain as anything historical ever can be. Yeah, and, I, and I've always loved this quote by Blaise Pascal, and he writes this in his, uh, in his thoughts on the Christian life, but he said, if God had never in any way revealed himself, and that's your big objection, and, and that was my objection too, that God, you know, hey, where's God? I don't see God. And look so how he, he turned out. He said, if God had never in any way revealed himself, this eternal abstention, meaning his, his being absent, could be interpreted in two ways, and we have to look at this. There's two possible explanations to why God is not here, and it might be just as well be related to the absence of any divinity. So, hey, you could, hey, maybe, maybe I'm right, right, as, an, as a non-believer. Maybe there is no God, right? It says it might just as well be related to the absence of any divinity as to the unworthiness of men to know him. And then he says, but because he appears sometimes and not always, and that's what you're talking about, that he has appeared, that removes any ambiguity. If he appears once, he is eternally. And thus, one can only conclude that there is a God and that humans are unworthy of him. So his argument is, let's uh, apply it to a social climate, that person doesn't exist. I've never met them. Well, it could be that because you've never met them, they don't exist, or it could be because they know that you don't like them, and so they're avoiding you. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Absolutely. Meaning, if, if, if God shows up once on the scene in history, then there's no more ambiguity as far as the existence of God. And this is what Jesus has come to do. Jesus' claim, his big claim, is, I have come to reveal the Father. This is the big revelation is that he who has seen me has seen the Father. And so all ambiguity is gone now. So that only leaves us with one other explanation, and that is we as humans are unworthy of the divine. And if there you is, interact with atheists on Reddit or YouTube, you're going to find out that is exactly the case. Yeah, that something's wrong with us. And this is the heart of humans, is we have so much pride, and we are so self-righteous, that the last thing we want to do is admit that something is wrong with me. I would rather look, I'd rather point the arrow, you know, the, the finger in every other direction, but to look that maybe I'm the problem. Maybe my heart's the problem. Maybe I'm unworthy of a righteous God. Because when Jesus comes back, what's mankind's first reaction? To start worshiping him or start no. shooting at him? That's right. It's And, and they'd rather... They'd rather die and hide in caves, yeah. uh, we see in the book of Revelation, than, than stand before a holy God. And this is, this is uh, you know, the Bible uses that word terror when it comes to standing before a holy God. And, and uh, this makes us quite uncomfortable. It made atheists, you know, Aldous Huxley and many others uncomfortable in their writings. They are very clear on that. Um, Albert Camus, Jean-Paul Sartre, you can go down the list of atheists and uh, agnostics who really struggled with the righteousness of God. 
and uh, and they knew that they wanted to reject it simply because they wanted to live the life that they wanted to live. They did not want accountability, and so to to in a sense reject God is what I would find to be true. Like, yeah, God is righteous. Human beings will reject the the righteous righteousness of God. That's what we do. Um, you know, there is a distance between us and a righteous deity. So that's what we see on the planet. All right. Question from Mac, who wants to know, is it natural to be afraid to die? How do you know if you're a follower rather than a fan of the Lord? Mm -hmm. uh, good phrasing there, Mac. Uh, obviously, the natural fear of death is, of course, natural. We weren't created to die, but if we understand death as Revelation 20 and 1 Corinthians 15 both define it, the last enemy to be destroyed is death, then it would be weird if you weren't afraid of it, because you see someone who is an enemy, someone who does not have your best intents at heart, who's an adversary to you, and say, I'd like to avoid that if possible. But the question then is not, are we afraid to die or not? We should be. The question is, what do we do in the face of it? And that depends on our relationship with the Lord. So in light of Max's question, Bo, how do you know if you're a follower rather than a fan, that you don't need to be afraid of death or you should be more? Yeah, um, and, and that is, it's about, you know, obviously your relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, in the book of Hebrews chapter 2, it says, "...inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood," meaning us, "...he himself, Jesus likewise, shared in the same, flesh and blood." that through death he might destroy him who had power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death, so it is put in the scripture that we do have a fear of death, humans do, that is something that we do fear, but this is what has, Jesus has come to conquer, um, and that we were subject to this bondage of fearing of death. Uh, but Jesus, it says, he does not give aid to the angels, but he gives aid to the seed of Abraham, those of faith, who trust he's a faithful high priest it goes on to say so you might want to read hebrews chapter 2 uh, from verse 14 on and just find comfort in that but it's about putting your faith in christ jesus said he who believes in me will never die and we have to understand that when death biblically speaking means separation from god that's the idea there so we don't have to fear death because death as defined scripturally, is separation from God. Those in Christ will never be separated. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, nor nothing, it says in the book of Romans chapter 8. So w those who have put their faith in Jesus, who are holding, clinging on to Christ, we know will never face separation. Will I fear my body, like the pain of going through dying, like the body dying? Well, sure, you know, I might fear that. It's not fun. You know, that's not fun at all. But, but as far as fearing separation from God, no way, you know, because we trust what Jesus said in the book of John, I think it's chapter 10, right, where he says, uh, you know, I am, I, uh, I, I am the resurrection and I am the life. He that believes in me will never die. And then he asks the great question in that chapter, do you believe this? And we have to answer the question is, do you believe it? Yes or no? Yep. You know? So note that in light of everything that we know about God, that he has defined a relationship on his terms, and that if you meet him on those, that you can be assured. This is how we have assurance, as the author of Hebrews says. And the, uh, 1 John is also an excellent resource on this. This is how we know we may have assurance before him, not that, of course, 
our hearts, they may condemn us, but God is greater than our hearts and knows all things, including by which the time at which you've taken him up on that offer. Yeah. Understand that salvation is spelled out for us very plainly in Scripture, that if you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. That's not a lot of wiggle room as far as the terms of your salvation. But what does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? Acknowledge who he is as he's revealed himself in history. If you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and... Um, uh, believe in your heart that God has risen him from the dead, how he proved it, you will, you be, will saved. be saved. Yeah, that's pretty straightforward. Yeah, and Romans again, 10. Yeah, so Mac, if you can point to a time where you've done that, you're good. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, we'll finish the broadcast with this because you got about two minutes. Um, question from Dwayne who wants to know, is hey, it Dwayne? okay? Yeah, okay to let man punish somebody who has committed a crime in court, or is it all God's job to decide who's punished? Yeah, Dwayne, um, the idea of capital punishment, the idea that man also bears the authority to enact justice on behalf of God, is given to us in Romans chapter 13 as yeah. something that is legitimate. And note, it defines uh, government not just as having the right to collect taxes, but in verse 4 it says, He, that is, those who are appointed in government, in verse 1, is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, note punishment for crimes, be afraid, for he, that is, those who are ministering to you for good, does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. And then it says that you should also be subject to those authorities. Now note, it doesn't mean that governments won't always get it wrong. There are such things as mistrials. There are such things as evil people in positions of power. Oh, they won't always get it right. But if we ask the question, does God uh, recommend government or anarchy? And the answer is obviously he is pro-government. He's put people in power to represent him. If they misuse that power, they'll stand before him. But note, we shouldn't oppose that on principle. It is always nice when the government is as least an influence or interference in our lives as possible. But if we ask, uh, you know, God's the judge, not man. Well, God has appointed some men to judge. Otherwise, there wouldn't be a book called the Book of Judges. Yeah, I, I mean, and, and, and I, think it's, I think it's something that you just, you always have to remember that um, there's individual actions that need to be taken, and then there's, then there's actions that leadership government can take that we can as individuals take. And we always have to remember there's a difference between the two. Yeah. So let us know if that helps you out, Dwayne, and thank you for the question. Thank you all for joining us during the broadcast. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, for those listening on Reach Radio, of course, you aren't aware of this, but thank you all for your patience on our YouTube and social media sites as well. We're getting some technology geared up for some upgrades in the soon future, but of course, with upgrades come complications. <laughs> Keep us in prayer. We're looking forward to the next time we'll be talking to you all about God's Word. Until then, also, Bo, thank you for joining yeah, us. Thank no you all for being with us. This has been A Reason for Hope. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.